Welcome to the Leap Podcast. This is Kat Fan, Tammy Tran, and Tammy Bowie, your hosts for the Leap Podcast. Leap stands for Leadership Education for Asian Pacifics. third episode of season two, we talked to Sonal Shaw, the founding president of the Asian American Foundation. The Asian American Foundation has raised nearly $1.1 billion in support of efforts to address longstanding lack of investment in Asian American and Pacific Islander communities and combat anti-Asian Pacific Islander violence. Sonal Honestly, it was so cool. She was amazing to talk to. Her energy um, just really made for an engaging conversation. And <laughs> we joke about it in the podcast. Like in this, you know, little under an hour that we got to to talk to her, we felt like we went through five different podcast episodes just talking about, you know, her um, her own personal leadership journey, you know, like how do we as women like show up in these spaces and how do we make space for others in addition to this AAPI identity of, you know, what does it mean to take this leap of faith that so many immigrants do and just instead of just survive, how do we thrive? And when we are, you know, faced with this fear of the unknown, how do we make how do we move forward when other people turn that similar fear into something that's motivated by hate? It's a lot to unpack. This conversation is very much the tip of the iceberg, but it is one that we are so immensely proud and so immensely grateful to have had. So everyone, without further ado, here is Sonal Shah. I've seen you on a lot of podcasts, Sonal. I love the podcast format because it's much more fun and it's much more conversational. Awesome. Well, congrats on all, all, the, all the great work that y'all are doing. It's really awesome. I really appreciate it. Thank you. No, it's it's been very fun and nervous getting started this season just because the first <laughs> season was so, I guess, I don't know if adrenaline is the right word, but it's like, oh, wow, we're doing this and it's keep on going. And <laughs> Here we are. But you're still doing it, which is amazing. True, I guess we're still doing it. So exactly. it's like gold star for the both of us. <laughs> Takes a village, for sure. I know. Well, we're happy that you are on. Oh my gosh. Season two, starting off with a lot of heavy hitters. <laughs> Season two, and y'all are kick, kicking it out of the park, which is amazing. Since you are on the podcast, so on the Leap podcast, it is so exciting because this is our first time, I think, interacting. Um, you know, Tammy and I have done our Google searches, but Google is definitely nothing in comparison to the real deal. So for our listeners that might not be, um, you know, might be living under a rock and might not know who you are, can you just share your like background and your leadership story? Like how, like what are the moving pieces that have gotten you here to where you are? Well, first of all, uh, Kat and Tammy, thank you so much for having me and super excited to be here. I am, uh, my name is Sonal Shah. I am the president of the Asian American Foundation. Well, the founding president. Uh, we have a new CEO that's incoming. And uh, prior to joining the um, uh, the Asian American Foundation, I've had a varied career in the public sector, in the private sector, and in um, academia. Uh, I have been um, a professor at Georgetown University, where I started and ran the Beck Center for Social Impact for about eight years. Before that, I've had two stints in government. Uh, I worked in the Clinton administration at the Department of Treasury, and uh, in the Obama administration, I ran the Office of Social Innovation at the White House. And that was really focused on how do we get government to be more creative and innovative and solving problems. And then um, in between those two stints, uh, I did, uh, I worked at Goldman Sachs and Google. So if there's anything that started with a G, I've probably worked there. And in both of those cases, really working on social impact uh, activities at Google, focused on doing global development initiatives, how we could do more in uh, largely South Asia in East Africa. And then Goldman, it was really focused on clean and uh, the clean energy movement, clean energy and the environment. 
So it's been a varied career, but I'd say the thread through all of it has been social impact and have really focused on sort of how do we have impact on people's lives and how do we take sort of really big ideas and narrow it down to what we can actually do for people. That's awesome, Sono. You know, before Kat opened, I should have shared with you, Kat doesn't give herself enough credit um, and I think culturally as Asian Americans, and particularly as women, you know, we don't like to talk about ourselves, but I have to say part of the reason we were doing this podcast is because we have some amazing stories. Yes. Um, you know, the way you introduce and talk about your background, it's like, oh, I did this and I did that. But that's a really amazing kind of example of how you can do very different things in different sectors and still have a thread throughout um, throughout that journey. And the journey for you is, you know, about giving back and about, you know, social impact. And that is really at the heart of what this podcast is about is to amplify those stories. Um, but also the heart of what Leap does, right, is because we believe at Leap that there can be leaders at every level from our community and that leaders are not inherently born, but they're grown um, and they're grown because we share with one another, we uplift one another. And so I just wanted to first acknowledge that that's just, that's what you do all the time. And we thank you for that. And I, I wanted to ask you, what was the, you talked about the thread, uh, whether it's the G that runs throughout or, or some other uh, thing. I'm curious, Sono, can you talk about maybe a little bit, take us back a little bit further, whether, whatever you feel comfortable with about your family or where you grew up and how this concept concept of social impact came to be for you? Why, why did you, why, why has it been something that has been important for you? Well, before I answer that, Tammy, can I just want to say like, you know, I think this point that you made, um, Tammy, about people uplifting each other is so critical, especially women. Too often we're asked not to talk about ourselves and too often we're reminded on a regular basis not to talk about ourselves. Grateful to both of you for the work that you do on and the willingness you're willing to go out there and talk about it because it matters. It matters for every little girl, every young woman that is creating her career. It's important that we keep uplifting voices and bringing people along with us. Um, so grateful to both of you for the work that you do. I started uh, so I'm an immigrant. I'm a first generation immigrant. My parents moved here to the United States when I was four years old. Um, and, you know, uh, for many that are first generation, you grow up in these sort of dual backgrounds, right? You're Indian at home. Uh, you're not Indian in school, but you're trying to figure out who you are. What does American mean to you? And how does that work? And I think that was throughout our throughout our um, childhood. And our parents, um, and I think similar to many immigrant parents, tried to create a community around them. I mean, I still remember when I was growing up, my parents would like, they'd see an Indian in a grocery store, and they'd like to make a beeline to talk to them, right? It didn't matter. Like, and it was embarrassing sometimes, but it was, a, it was amazing that they found people and they created a community. And I think what I learned from my parents probably more than anything else is we would run into people at airports and different places that needed a place to stay, that wanted, um, that needed help when they first emigrated here. And we, they stayed with us. And many times we've had many families, not only our family members, but other families who've stayed with us over time. And we just learned that, you know, it takes a village. You have to bring other people along with you. And that was something that I think was fairly ingrained in us um, as we were kids and trying to then measure this duality of how do you be Indian but still be American? How do you still give back to your community? How do you build community? I went to a school um, that was a thousand people in my graduating class and I played tennis and the, the group that I played tennis with was, you know, we were probably the only largest um team that was very uh, ethnically diverse. So we had uh, Filipinas, we had Chinese Americans, we had Taiwanese Americans, we had uh, Venezuelans, we had um, black, we had la other Latinos. So we just had a very diverse team. And what we learned is that, you know, you have to be able to work together and bring each other along and cheer for each other. Because I, I grew up in Texas, uh, there wasn't a lot of cheering for people of color. <laughs> so you became your own cheering squad at tennis tournaments and other places. So it's sort of been just a thing that 
you've learned that you could be angry or you could learn to bring people along with you. And our parents taught us that we had to make sure we were bringing people along. And that that is not just us, but I think the community around us, the tennis, the, the team that we played tennis with, their parents would come and cheer on the kids. You know, there was just a nice little camaraderie and community that was created. And and I, I think I just sort of learned to manage to do that throughout my life. And I'm lucky enough that I've had the opportunities. But more than that, I've been very extraordinarily lucky to have people who have helped me push me further than I would push myself to say, you could do more, you could try more, not just my parents and my family, but people at work, other places where people just told you to take risk. No, I love that. I I can like see it now because my school had a very big tennis team, but I think on the opposite spectrum, we were all not only Asian, but Vietnamese. And I think half of us had the same last name. I grew up in a very different diaspora than you did, Sonal. So it's so, so it's almost like, I don't know, not study abroad, but it's like, it's almost like a peek into a completely different life that I could have easily fallen into if my family had not come to Little Saigon, which, you know, had it, had it, had its own struggles, but I don't think a lack of representation within ourselves was one, but that just makes me, I'm just sharing my own personal experience. But when you're sharing like how community you're in, it did not really root for the underdog. And typically that underdog was a person of color, but y'all were able to build your own as even young people, you know, who might not have been aware of the unfortunate implement, you know, and consequences of scarcity mindset. But it just makes me think about my own upbringing, about how I too had so many people who were supporting me, who pushed me to be more, who even dangled the word more in front of me. But then at the same time, there were so many folks that because of our upbringing and our generational trauma really fell into a scarcity mindset. And I think it's just an interesting dichotomy because there were so many of us in the Vietnamese community who looked like us and shared the same culture, shared the same ideas. But because of the scarcity mentality, a lot of us felt like, you know, as high school kids, there's only X amount of spots at UCLA, you know, X amount of spots on student government, X amount of spots in the AP classes. And that's a, a microcosm. But then we take those feelings to our quote unquote real lives. Like, oh, there's only X amount of Asians in the boardroom. There's only X amount of PIs in leadership. And if someone's in that spot, that means I can't be in that spot. And it breeds this competition and resentment. So how how do we create such like a bountiful society? Because it is happening, right? Like with the Asian American Fund, like what was it? In two weeks after your your um your public announcement, you raised one billion dollars. That's billion with a B, you know? That's more money than than a whole community will see in their lifetime. And that's just from one organization. So how do we create resources and a plentiful mindset with folks who are so used to scarcity? Yeah, it's a great, it's a great point. You know, it's so funny, Kat. Um, it probably depends on when you first came and emigrated to the United States that you you knew how many, whether there was a little Saigon or a little India or other things. Because I came, um, I emigrated in 1972. We came to Houston in 1976. So there just weren't that many. And even where I live now and where I grew up, it's it is also Little Saigon now in the same area. And um, the Asian population, just within the age range of my brother and I were 10 years apart. They, a third of the school was Asian by the time he graduated. And it was only 10% when I graduated. So it just gives you a, a sense of like how much it's wow. changing and how quickly it's changing. Yeah. And that was a 10 year span, right? So I think the thing to keep in mind is, and also just to give grace to our elders and our parents that they came here with not a lot and they had to survive, right? And the option for them was not to go back to Saigon or go back to India or to go back to other places. Like they had to survive. So the scarcity mindset was real for them because they didn't have a place for their children to go if something happened. They needed to, they needed their children to succeed. Now the challenge, and I'll just say this for myself, right? Like, yes, my school still had the same thing, you know, the top of the, you know, even though like there was a top 20 of the top 18 were all Asian. Um, but what the funny part is I was not in that top 18. Right. And so it, and it's, it's a good reminder once in a while that like 
it doesn't matter if you're in the top 10 or the top five or the top three, like people make it in their life once they figure out who and what they want to do. And then you have to bring other people along with you, right? Don't close the door because you make it. Bring someone there with you. Help someone else make it. Make sure you're looking out for someone along the way because you may not have had the company when you get started, but you can create the company as you get started, because that's how, and I was lucky enough when I, I got appointed uh, and I actually I came in as a civil servant in the Clinton administration, there was a woman by the name of Maria Haley. She came from Arkansas. She's Asian American. She ran the office of personnel for president Clinton. And she brought in all of these amazing Asian women, amazing Asian women, Vida Benavides, Irene Bueno, all these women who came in and they found me and they gave me support. And they're like, this is, and so when I was appointed in the Obama administration, they picked up the phone and they called me and they said, now it's your responsibility to do the same for somebody else. So it's a good reminder that the expansion is, it feels like a scarcity mindset, but we're, we're not even in half the fields, right? So how do we open it up? So there are more people, there are more Asians in the White House. There are more Asians at Treasury. There are, if we go from one to 10, like that's huge, right? That's a tenfold increase. So how do we think that way that we're helping? And our, in many ways, our parents actually did that. If you think about it, if somebody got a job in some company, they helped 10 other people, 15 other people get a job in the same company. And in some ways, we've become so competitive that we forgot about how to bring people in and how to help the next person come in. So I think that I think what we have is one, we should give grace to our parents, but two, recognize that there's so much possibility I mean, we're at 3.1% unemployment, like in the United States, 3.1%. There's so much possibility that just because it's the 10 jobs you see in front of you, don't forget the 99 other jobs around you that you can help someone get. That's so awesome, Sono. I had so many thoughts, uh, bubbles kind of like pop up in my mind as you were talking. Um, and even from your earlier comments about risk taking. Um, I, I so I have two questions for yeah. you. One is I'd love to I'd love to know about um what you would consider one of your biggest risks that you've taken so far and whether yeah. or not it materialized exactly how you had wanted, um, because it relates to my second question, which is, you know, sometimes it's the um, not knowing, but doing it anyway, because people believed in you or because you feel like you you owe it to this larger purpose, right? Whether it's yeah. your community or your family or whatever it is that you, that you keep going. And so that was going to be my second part, which is what do you think about when you, when you take these leaps, you yeah. know, um, into other things that you may or may not be familiar with, whether it's in government or in the private sector. I mean, you did different things. So yeah, it's such a great question, Tammy. I, I think about it in two ways. So one, um, so the biggest risk I think I took was actually in my twenties. Um, I was like late twenties. I was working at the department of treasury. This was, um, just as we had, uh, the U S government had finished bombing in Sarajevo, Bosnia. And, um, my boss asked, me if I would be willing to go to Sarajevo to do post-conflict reconstruction. And, you know, I didn't, I mean, probably because I didn't know any better and probably because, you know, you're 20 something, you take, you, you don't think too much. I was like, sure, I'd go. I mean, literally within two months from when I said that I was landing in Sarajevo, I had no idea. My job was to create, help them build a central bank and a currency. I mean, what 29 year old knows anything about that? Let's be fair. So I didn't know anything about it. I knew that I could figure it out. My boss said he would help me. Nobody else wanted to go, to be fair. Um, so it wasn't like I was competing with anyone for the job. And I showed up in Sarajevo without any idea of what I was supposed to do, how I was supposed to do it. I didn't really understand the politics of Sarajevo and the three different communities and, and the battles that had taken place there. And what was so fascinating is they didn't see me as American. So I got more information, more ability to get stuff done because they didn't think I was American. Even though I was based at the embassy in Sarajevo, even though I was a U.S. diplomat, even though all of that being said, they never saw me as American. So I got to get away with doing stuff that and going around in parts of the country that nobody else could go to because they didn't see me as a threat. But I could, I could get stuff done. So if anything, what that one risk taught me was to build my confidence that I could figure it out. 
that I may not know anything mm-hmm. going in, but I can talk to a lot of people and I can figure out where the gaps are and I can help someone solve a problem. I was not the smartest economist in the book. There were World Bank people there, IMF people there. There were a bunch of really smart people there. I was not the the you know the best economist in the world, but I knew how to thread that needle of getting something done, bringing the smart people to the table to know what needed to be asked and what needed to be done. So I, I think the thing I learned there was just like being okay with uncertainty and building my own confidence that I could figure this out. And learning that at 30, to be honest, 28, not 29, 30 was really important. And that one risk to be, that one risk was the reason I got the next three jobs. Mm. So I got to Goldman Sachs because the person I worked with in Sarajevo became the chief of staff to then the chairman of, of Goldman Sachs. And Sheryl Sandberg, who was Larry Summers' chief of staff, knew who I was because I had gone to Sarajevo. So when she went to Google, she picked up the phone and called and said, who could help and do something in an uncertain environment where they didn't know how to do something? So that sort of risk led to a lot of other opportunities. And I think that was an that was sort of an important statement. The thing I would say to most people is like too often we're always calculating what A is going to lead to, what B is going to lead to, what C is going to lead to. Sometimes you take a leap and you're not really sure where it's going to lead. And it's okay to know that and to know that you're going to be fine because you know what you're doing, not because the world, you know, has to recognize it. But once you're confident in it and you can do it, you'll sur- you'll thrive and you'll survive. And I think too often we give up on ourselves and we're busy thinking that the job is going to get us there versus ourselves. And it's ourselves that get us there. But build your allies, right? Know who your people are that are going to support you, that are going to do that. Don't, don't be naive about it because we do have to build our allies. And then the second biggest risk I took, believe it or not, was the opposite of what I just told you, which is when I left the administration, uh, the the White House, I actually took a year off. Like I didn't take a job. And the number one thing everybody said when I left was like, this is the moment you should be getting the biggest job possible. Everybody knows who you are. You should get, you should take that. And I was so tired and I was so exhausted. I didn't even know what I wanted to do. So by taking that year off, it gave me an opportunity to step back and say, what else can I do? Like academia was nowhere in my mindset. Nowhere had I even thought about it. I was like, you know, it was philanthropy maybe or a company, but never thought about academia. That came to be a year later to take that opportunity to go start a center at Georgetown. But that was not something I had even dreamed about a year before. But that risk was totally worth it. One, I got to rejuvenate myself. But two, it just reminded me that I know I could do what I needed to do. I just need to figure out how to do it. And not being uncomfortable, again, being uncomfortable, because I was very uncomfortable saying no to the first offer that came my way. And by saying no, it gave me power to say yes later to what I wanted. That is so amazing, Sonal, because I think so often we feel like progress means doing, right? That right. some that somehow giving yourself space to actually kind of think about meaningfully like what to do next is some is inaction. But but like you say, that space allowed you to get to where you eventually like wanted to be. So that's that's such a great reminder. And, and you, and you know, and we do, and for women, especially, we're always told, don't leave the workforce. Don't do this. Don't do that. And it's like, yeah, but you know, we're, we're good at stuff. Right. And mostly I find women are extraordinarily good at building camaraderie at building collaboration. And today's world, that is a value in any job. Like you need to be able to build collaboration and women know how to do that and just have to be confident that you can figure it out. Like we're educated. We know, I mean, I have worked for so many mediocre men that I am tired of women who are way overqualified saying they can't do a job. Like, I just can't, I, I talk to my friends when they say that I'm like, really? Like, I, I mean, I've worked with a lot of mediocrity. Yeah. Talk to us then, Sunil. That was the other thing that we didn't share when we started this podcast and Kat helped us produce it. Tammy Tran and I thought about this first season being exclusively about women in power. And we did that for exactly what you just said. So often we are okay being behind the scenes, right? We're okay doing all the work. Um, and in the workplace, I remember, I remember after I had my daughter being told, you know, Tammy, maybe you just work half time. 
right? That way there's less pressure and you don't. And I remember thinking, I'm not working half time because I'm putting in 100% effort. You should pay me 100%. (laughs) But it was because of other women saying exactly what you did, Sonal, that like we owe it to ourselves. We know what we're capable of doing. And so I wanted to ask you if you could talk a little bit about the women perhaps in your life, whether it's your mom or um, role models, or you spoke a little bit about some of those people who gave you opportunities. Um, yeah. Are there one or two or maybe many that you can speak to as an example of what they did to to reach their hand out to you? Well, many. So there, some are peers and some are role models, right? So I want to first start with both my mom and my grandmother, right? First, and then I think you may have, both of you may have the same, but you know, my mom came here when she was 22 years old, right? Or 24, sorry, I was a four-year-old at the time. But like, she didn't know English. She got on a plane. There was nobody picking her up. They didn't call. There was no cell phone. Like there was a letter that she had written saying this was the flight she was coming on. When you think about the courage it took to get on an airplane from India to land in the United States, not know if someone's picking you up with two kids and having to make transits, can't speak English, don't have the right clothing, you land in New York City. Uh, You know, that's just courage we don't even think about because they survived and they thrived. Right. They figured out how to get groceries. They could figure out how to cook with whatever supplies that they had. They didn't have everything that they needed. They figured out all of this stuff. And I think about my mom all the time. And it's like, I don't know what I'm afraid of when I have a phone. I can pick up the phone and call people. I can ask for things. And they didn't have any of that. And they made it they made it work and they figured it out. And the second is my grandmother. She was widowed at the age of 50 and came and lived in the United States, never spoke a lick of English the whole time she lived with us and grew, you know, we grew up with her. And yet she was not afraid of anything, right? Nothing, no people, nothing. She was just like, she would go out. She would, she came with, I was in Italy one year. She came, she would go down there and negotiate, even though she didn't speak English, she would negotiate with the vendors on different things. But it was just amazing because, you know, you sort of think about this and you're like, wow, the the ability for women to just make it work is incredible. And like, we sometimes think education is what gives us strength. I mean, my mom's not, she didn't pass, she was high school educated. My grandmother never got educated. She was married at the age of 14, right? Like that courage is incredible. So thinking about the two of them and what they've been able to do. And then along the way, many people. So Nancy Birdsall was my boss at the Center for Global Development. First female to lead a think tank in Washington, DC. Like incredible, just never let the noise bother her. Can I imagine, there's not that many, female economists that make it to the top in general. So just think this was in 2002, 2004 that, that she was doing this. This was not small, but she was a great leader and she would always push me to do more. It's like, why can't you do that? Why don't you do that? I don't know how to put it together. She's like, well, figure it out, right? Like it was just, it was a, it was this not like, she didn't take no for an answer. She just kept pushing which was incredible. And then I think today in my life, the people that push me the most are younger people. You know, too often I find myself having to catch myself, right? When women come in and I'm hiring them and they want to negotiate salaries and they want to push me further. And I, sometimes I bristle and sometimes I have to just step back and say, Sonal, are you mad because they're doing it and you couldn't do it? Or are you mad because, you know, what, what's bothering you? And so I have to catch myself, but I sort of have to say like, I have so much respect for the young women today and what they're pushing for that if I could do a little bit, I think they push me to be better at what I am, but they push me to ask questions that I didn't know. And I think the thing I take away from my life right now is that you can learn from so many people, elderly people, as well as younger people who sometimes are doing the things you wish you had done at 20 something or 30 something. And I'm so grateful that they're doing it because it's pushed me in the jobs to push myself because it's like, well, you know, if a 25 year old can do it, why can't a 50 year old want to do it? So I, I've just learned a lot. And I think, I think, you know, one other woman that I think is super, was super valuable in my life was, uh, was a woman at uh, Goldman Sachs. She was the only senior partner at Goldman Sachs 
And she would talk to every single female that wanted attention or wanted to know how to do better at Goldman. And somebody like her, like I learned to, to never say no to somebody when they reach out because she talked to every woman at Goldman, every young person, every new person who wanted advice. And it's incredible that people that take that time to do that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And to be fair, there's been a lot of men. Yeah, I mean, there have been a lot of men that have helped me too. I don't want to list only the women because um, a lot of my career progression has also been because of men. You know, my boss at Treasury, um, Hank Paulson at Goldman Sachs, like there's been a lot of men that have also been a part of it. I don't think it's one or the other, but I do think I've learned a lot from the women because they, I, I saw them as people I wanted to emulate. Yeah, no, that's, uh, I was just going to say, I feel like I've listened to like five podcast episodes. There's just so much to glean from. I'm trying to get my thoughts in art because there's so, like Cam was saying, like the bubbles just kind of formulate when you were talking, Sonal. There's just so much I want to touch upon. But I think the first thing I want to think about is, it's interesting when you're saying that because when you were sharing like, oh, when I was, you know, 28, like I, I made a decision that really impacted the next three career moves. And in my head, I'm 25, I'm turning 26 this month. And I was like, okay, I got to prep for the next two years for my big break, you know, and then you put on your next point. It's like, but you need to take rest. And I'm like, oh, shoot, just kidding. I'm gonna rest up for the next two years. I think it's so impactful is what you said about you know, like, am I angry that this person did something that I couldn't when I was her age? And I think it's so fascinating this, um, how quickly we are checked with generational change. I spoke to an 11 year old a couple nights ago at this function. And I was like, I can't believe you're a cognizant human being. I feel like when I was 11, I was just playing Pokemon like on my couch all the time. And here you are at this big fundraiser talking to politicians and community leaders like you own the place like it is bananas to me but also on the same vein of you know just empowering ourselves Tammy Bowie does an amazing job of lifting me and it's interesting because when she says stuff like oh Kat doesn't give her enough give herself enough credit like let me share all these things she does to be honest my first thought is like oh wow I didn't even realize I was putting myself down yeah oh, I thought I'm just I'm just talking and I'm just setting the scene and I don't realize that for myself, I'm just sharing my personal feelings, but then I'm actually putting myself down to level the playing field or to make other people comfortable. And it's always very jarring because it's like, huh, I'm doing this with you know a friend and a mentor like I'm doing this also to people who will just believe me face front of like oh I guess she's I guess she is just you know another kid so it's very interesting for me to like how we talk about ourselves and that brings me to the next point what you shared about when you were there you know overseas people didn't think you were an American you know probably because you weren't a white man like let's just be point blank like you weren't a white man so people didn't think you were an American and you played that to your advantage because then you were able to build connections because you know people didn't see you as a threat because unfortunately the United States is not always the hero of other people's stories and it brings up this next point of the rise of violence or I should say the cyclical nature of violence because this is not new like what happened with you know police brutality the rise of hate crimes this is a very similar kind of fear of what does it mean to be American and for you when you're sharing about your mother and your grandmother they use their fear and they thrived they were able to channel it into being nurturing into raising children who then uplift others and that's a positive impact that same fear gets really demonized and then it's used to to fuel hate so it's just such a two-pronged direction so how do we when we're talking about this fear so now i think i'm just going on on a tangent but i think about it and i think about how sometimes it just feels like such a choice it's like i am choosing to use my fear now as an agent of hate sometimes it's just a lack of opportunity so how do we i don't know address these hate crimes that are happening how do we address the systemic violence i know the asian american fund is trying to use philanthropy to financially uplift folks. So, so oftentimes people are underworked and actually overworked, underpaid. And that's one area. But is there is there more that we could do to address this fear? Is it too simple to say that it's just fear? 
Yeah. Oh my gosh. There's Kat, there's so much in that. I think we could, again, I think we probably have a whole podcast on just this conversation of, of all the great points that you made. And I think, um, you know, you're right. Like hate hasn't, this is not new and it's certainly not new in the history of the United States and especially against Asian Americans, right? There's been cycles of this, whether, whether we can go back for me, I can go back to the seventies and it was affected when, um, two things would, you know, when the, when the Iran hostage crisis was taking place and my last name is Shah, S-H-A-H, they thought we were related to the Shah of Iran and we would have harassment at school. People would you know, throw bricks through our windows. Um, and it was sort of a good eye into, wow, you're not, you're always seen as the other. Um, and then Vincent Chen's murder in 1982, um, the LA riots, like there's so many, there are so many aspects of this that we sort of remember them in spurts, but we don't think about everything in between. And there's a lot in between um, that our families have gone through, that our parents have gone through. Many of them have faced systemic racism and they don't want to talk about it, right? Because again, they had to survive in this country. There was no option for them to go anywhere. So racism is not something that they talk about. It's something that they've absorbed. And, and we have to recognize that, not be mad at it, but just recognize that that exists. So I think there's three things that we should think about. And, and philanthropy is only one, one part of this challenge. Uh, part one is just we need to report and talk about it more. And I don't mean just report so the world can know, but also talk about it within our families, right? Opening up those conversations, really thinking about how do we get those mental health conversations? Because our parents and our families have absorbed a lot and we don't talk about it, right? We just haven't. And so I think one part of the work that we all can do is actually open up that conversation and understand what kinds of things our families have gone through and how do we open that conversation for our communities. The second is reporting. So the more people know, the more we can do something about it. But when we don't know, we can't help, right? And that fear is is real, right? You don't want to report to the police because you don't know what's going to come back at you. You don't want to report to other authorities. So how do we strengthen organizations in local communities that can become the place where you can go to and get help and ask for help? Because we're going to also learn not to ask for help. Uh, we don't talk about it. So how do we do that? How do we strengthen these local organizations? It's partial philanthropy. It's partially participating. It's making sure we build those connections that we do that. The third is philanthropy, right? Like we should give, like not just us, not just Asian Americans for Asian Americans, but you know, others should be giving for Asian Americans too. We are American, let's be clear. We are not hybrid American. We are American of Asian descent, but that doesn't mean we're not American. We are American. And it's important for us to recognize that too. And I see this sometimes even in my own family. They're like, oh, she's an Indian married to an American. Largely that means she's an Indian married to a white person. And it's important for us to even step back and remind them that like we are American. Why don't we see ourselves as the same? We might have a heritage, but we are still American. And recognizing that is important. And then the last piece I would say that's important is we need more Asians in public service at state levels, at local levels, at national levels. We need more Asian Americans running for office, whether it's city council, whether it's, you know, because that's when you start changing the system is when they see you in the system. And um, I and, and I think I think you're in California. So Wilma Chan, all the work that she did in Oakland is is incredible, right? Because if it hadn't been for her, our communities wouldn't even have a quarter of the things that we have. So just remembering that there are people that came, but don't see public service as the do good thing, but do public service as like, it can also be a career and you can also make a difference. And there's lots of ways of doing that. So I think there's ways that we can all participate. There's money, but there's also participation that matters and we have to be a part of that. Hmm. A hundred percent agree, Sono. And it's sad when you talk about Wilma Chan because of um, what happened. Um, and it's a reminder of, my goodness, you know, we, we put, tomorrow is not promised, but the days that she was here and the difference she made was, I mean, we still feel it today. When she was in the legislature, I remember... Um, so I was a staffer in Sacramento and there were so few Asian Americans in the building that people would mix up Wilma Chan, Carol yep. Liu and Judy Chu. Yep. And these are all distinct names, <laughs> but it's like and distinct Wilma features, Chan, right? They don't all look the same either. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, gosh, there were so many great points in that. Um, 
you know, you said something about how our families and how we have just absorbed, um, you know, some of the trauma and some of the things that have happened to us. Um, and you bring up mental health and you're so right. So no, I think it's like we culturally, we don't talk about it, um, because we, because it's shameful actually, right? Like it's, it's, um, it's not seen as a, um, a positive thing to, to raise our hands and say, you know, that our, we or our family member may be dealing with something, but the harsh reality of that is, is that if we don't recognize it as something to be, uh, addressed, it doesn't get addressed. Um, so, so it's super important when you talk about the work that you personally have done, but that the fund is doing, it really, really shines a light on the work, um, that is needed. Um, and I was going to ask you, you have so many amazing people on your board who are involved. And I'm wondering when you have all these people, um, with such distinguished backgrounds, including yourself, how do you all, I mean, are, how do you, how did you bring all these people together? First and foremost, um, were you all just basically saying like, we're so tired of, of not already having something like we're, we're so tired of having to say the same thing over and over um what has it been like you know working together and how 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 did you bring everyone together yeah it's a great question so first i think the credit goes to adl jonathan greenblatt brought together the board actually a lot of lee lu our board chairman mostly to say we're seeing a lot of asian hate um through through the anti-defamation league and are, you all should do something about it. So he brought some of these leaders together from the community and said, what are you going to do about it? And Li Lu, uh, who's our board chair, uh, was a dissident in China and sort of knows what this feels like and, and, and how it can how it can uh, lead, decided to really bring together Asian American, prominent Asian Americans and say, listen, we have to do something like who's in? Right. So he cast the net wide and six people joined in. So the board that we have is sort of the, the, the cast net cast wide who then joined in. And um, and then I came in October of last year. So they were like, OK, in order for us to do this, we also need somebody who can run this. Right. So who can who can be an ex, who can lead this organization. We are full, you know, we know philanthropy and we know business. We don't really know civil rights. And how do we bring this together? So I came in um, to help them get it launched in this idea of like, how do you take an idea and put it into action? Right. Again, it's sort of the, the cat. This is the thread that sort of runs constantly. He's like, I'm happy to show up and figure out how to get it running and what to do and how to make that happen. And what was amazing in that time in May of when we launched to when we went and asked people to give money, not just to CATAF, but to the Asian American community, the demand was there, the need was there, people wanted to give, people were interested in giving. So we were really just pushing on an open door and saying, listen, we've got to do something and not just in small scale, we need to do it at scale. Like people need to know that the Asian American community is here. This is not just about, oh, there's lots of us, we're doing lots of little things, but this is like, we're here and we're not going away. And so you have to deal with that. And that was sort of the intent of the launch, but also the intent of TAF is to say, we need everyone to thrive, all of the communities, all of the organizations. But we also need to remind people that when there's something going on, we're paying attention and that the community is not going away. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And I think for so long, Sonal, we, you know, you've talked about something else earlier, which is for, we have not also talked about our own um, issues. You know, you talked about how when you're referring to marrying an American, um, and we have the same thing in our family, when people say they married an American, and I have to remind my parents, we're American. We're American too, right? But they're specifically referring to white Americans as being the real Americans. And so we have to look at ourselves and say, how, what language are we using? How are we perceiving ourselves? Um, and then if that's how we're seeing ourselves, how do we expect others to treat us? Um, so, um, so I'm, I'm also curious, you know, how you feel, you talked about young people inspiring you, um, you know, and, and keeping you and moving and learning. Um, one of the things I have to admit is I feel like we have a lot to learn from, from and within our own communities, right? Because being South Asian, you have a different experience than, than me as a Vietnamese American. And yet there are similarities as well. I just feel like, um, there's so much more or so much more room where we we, you know, where we can, can come together. And I'm curious what you feel like, um, 
for yourself that you're excited about, um, whether it's continuing to teach and impact young people or, you know, now that you've stepped back in your role as president and letting somebody else lead it while you're still involved, what are you um, excited about um, as we as we move forward, particularly as we're in our final weeks of uh 2021. I know it's crazy to believe that. We were like, it was in 2020 where we were like, oh my God, 2021 is going to be so much better after 2020. And here we are at the end of 2021. And you're like, okay, I'm, oh my God, I'm looking forward to 2022. Um, (laughs) Um, I I think first, um, and, and Tammy, that's such a great the point about our communities and needing to work together in our communities, I think um, too often when we think about one identity, like Asian American, like the fear we all have, and I'm going back to Kat's comment about fear, is that my identity is going to get erased if I go into a larger identity. And I think we should, I think we just need to redefine this, right? To be a part of a larger identity doesn't mean you take away from being your small, your your individual identities, right? Like mm-hmm. we're mm-hmm. American, but you know, I don't know, the South isn't the same as the East and the East isn't mm-hmm. the same as the Midwest. I mean, like nobody can say one of there's one American, mm-hmm. right? So there's an American identity. And within that, we have an Asian American identity. And within that, we have our individual identities. But it would be great for us to all learn from each other, too, because I'm mm-hmm. guessing that we have a lot of similar like we could, I could probably tell you stories about my growing up. And I bet there's very similar stories to about when mm-hmm. you were growing up and the things mm-hmm. that we were all embarrassed about, things that our parents did and said and afraid that they might mm-hmm. say it in public. Um, you know, mm-hmm. I don't know about you, but my mom would go to the grocery store and count every penny. And I'd be like, oh, my God, it's just a penny. And she'd like go back and talk about it. But, you know, there's like all of these things that we could probably all talk about and probably have very similar stories. And we could crack ourselves up about it right because they're just funny Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. um but it's it's Mm -hmm. a it's a nuance that's funny but recognize and celebrate our differences at the same time recognize and celebrate that we can work together for a larger identity and pushing for the things Mm -hmm. that we need as a community so i think that's what matters and not not Mm -hmm. subsuming our identities but recognizing all of it matters Mm -hmm. so i think that's that's a that's an important Mm -hmm. thing for us to do what i love about the young people is they know that already Mm. They're not asking for permission. They're just doing mm-hmm. it. And, and, and there's some beauty in that ability to know that there's no fear stopping them. They just, mm-hmm. they expect that that's what should happen to them. There's no fear there, which is incredible. And, and I think that's something that we could learn from them. I think it's something that we should adapt from them and sort of catch our own fears along the way mm. because it's a, it's the same story about like when someone was negotiating with me I had to ask myself well, what was that fear what was my fear and how do we do that so mm. that's sort of like how I think about it and that's this the the um but what I'm looking forward to in 2022 honestly is continuing to teach young people because I think that's where our future is um you know keep pushing on this impact piece, right? Because I, I personally care a lot about the climate and I care a lot about democracy. And I think we have to, we're going to have to fight for our democracy, like having lived overseas and seeing where it goes away, like we have to fight for it. Like it is, it's not granted and it's not a given and making sure that democracy stands is important for the rest of the world too, not just for us, but for the rest of the world to see that this experiment of America is actually a real experiment and it's good uh, to keep doing that. And, and climate change. Listen, you saw the tornadoes this year, this week already. Like, this is what the world is going to be. It's going to be uncertain, and we have to get ready for it. So wherever those young people are that are doing that, count me. They're backing them and pushing them and telling them to keep going. I will be there to, like, pave, you know, open up the pathways for them to do it because, honestly, um, they're onto something, and I'm, I'm all in. Amazing. I thought I heard little voices there too, Sonal. Do you have the, do you have the my nephew walked in? Oh, yeah. <laughs> Does he want to be on the podcast? Does he have opinions on climate change? <laughs> I know. Gosh, I want we need to make sure climate change doesn't take away his livelihood and his chances. Um but I think the thing that we have to do to be fair is the world is also very angry and to channel that anger to progress because if we all just get angry, we're not gonna change the world. An eye for an eye isn't going to solve the problem. 
have to think about how do we collectively work together. And again, I think that's where this generation is, but it's something that we all can do, which is help sort of um, manage the anger towards progress. Mm-hmm. Did you always have that mindset, Sono? When you were younger, were you more angry first or, and you evolved to that mindset? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, no, I was pissed off all the time. <laughs> I was always pissed off. I was, I'm saying I'm sort of pissed off all the time. I think I'm sort of always like, you know, why do I have to do it that way? Why can't I do it the other way? Um, but I think I've just sort of learned to say, how do we create and open up pathways as opposed to um, just being mad that. So I think personally, like we're always mad that we're not at the table. So I'd rather change it. And I want to flip the script and say, let's create our own table and make people want to come to that as opposed to why am I not sitting at that table? Because it's, it's to the earlier conversation of like the expansion is a huge opportunity. So let's just expand. Let's create multiple tables and ask people to join them as opposed to saying you have to be at that table if you want to be successful. No, I, I totally feel that. I'd also, <laughs> it just made me laugh when, because young people are angry. I, that's probably the reason why I dyed my hair blue. People are like, oh, are you going for a breakup? I'm like, no, climate change is just making me so upset. And I just need to do something about it. But I think you speak with such grace, Sono. You really speak with such grace. And I think it comes with having so much lived experience. And I think it's, you know, when we see the statistics, I think, According to Forbes, there had been a, what was it, about over 1,600% increase on hate speech on the internet. And for me, it's like, how is that even possible? Like, I didn't even realize there was that many people that had access to the internet that could bump to understand greatly. And I think as a, a younger person, it's hard to see the end game. You know, I think there is this narrative like we must find the courage to use our imagination and create a better world, which I agree with. I think it's a beautiful sentiment, but sometimes it just feels like a sentiment. It doesn't feel like a reality. And how do we, I don't know, I think there is a compromise of let's honor our history, let's not repeat it, and but use that to create a future. But then when you're in the present, it just feels like the two are completely disconnected. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's listen, it's a hats off to you all. I mean, seriously, I think honestly, you're you're being handed a world that is much more dysfunctional than I think even or maybe I just didn't know about how dysfunctional it was, to be fair. But I think what social media has honestly helped with is at least we're now seeing in public what was sometimes being said in private. And now we know that the sentiment is actually there. It's some, it's in many cases been very hidden and, and now it's just public. And so I think there's a value to knowing where you stand and not, you know, I grew up in the South where it was very clear where I stood and people were very clear about it. I got to the Northeast and I swear to God, there was the same racism, but nobody talked about it. And, and so I think this, this, the fact that it's public sort of just wrecking, you're now recognizing that it's still there. We haven't, it hasn't gone away. It's always been around, but now we know how to work through it and what to do. But to remember, I think, um, Kat, and I just, and I know this is not, it's not, it's easy to say when you're 50 and not when you're 25. So just, I, I recognize it and I just want to be honest about it, but it took a lot of people to, it took a lot of people in the civil rights movement for Martin Luther King to succeed. There were many hundreds of years where cases have been brought. Somebody stood up, somebody fought back, somebody tried harder, somebody did this. When you look at when you look at just history, right, um, the Underground Railroad to um, to uh, 12 years a slave. When you read all of that history, you realize how many people had been fighting in order for a moment in history to happen. So to recognize we're in that fight every day. And so we we are just instigating change. And it's like a it's like a wave. You don't know when that wave becomes a bigger wave, but you know that all those waves are going somewhere. You just have to keep creating those waves.